This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church. This is Pass the Mic. All right, greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pass the Mic, Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church, powered by the Reformed African American Network. I'm your host, Tyler Burns. As always, Jamar Tisby is with us as well. Jamar, how you, how you doing? I'm doing real good, man. I'm 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 on sort of like a uh, Christian fellowship high or buzz or something not charged like that, but feeling good. Interesting. Explain, because I might be on something similar. <laughs> well, I had the opportunity to go to a church, First Presbyterian Church in Augusta, Georgia, for their missions conference this past weekend, and it was wow. phenomenal. Um, here you have a historic. Presbyterian Church in America congregation. It's about over 200 years old, and they are doing some of the most exciting, meaningful, innovative work toward racial reconciliation that I've seen in a church like that. Um, just awesome. really making intentional moves to stay in the city, to minister to the city, have members move in the city. I met a bunch of public education folks, a bunch of teachers, which has uh, not been my experience within evangelicalism. And so I was greatly encouraged. Also, they were big fans of the Reformed African American Network and passed the mic. One of the guys was really funny. He was like, he, he met me and he'd been listening to the show. He's like, wow, you sound exactly like you do on the show. So I said, <laughs> I said, well, what did you think I would sound like? And then I gave a shout out to Bo, our producer. I said, he'll be glad that's to hear exactly that. That's exactly it. Yep, that's, that's Bo. That's credit to Bo right there. So it was a great trip. Shout out to all the saints at First Pres Augusta. Keep doing what you're doing. Be encouraged. I certainly was. And thank you so much for your support. Yeah, that's interesting and really encouraging to hear because interesting and ironic because over the weekend, I had the privilege of going to a launch of the AND campaign. Um, which is sponsored by Show Baraka and has some incredible speakers there um, from Dr. Carl and Karen Ellis, who I had the privilege of meeting for the first time. Had a minor freak out when I met Dr. Ellis. Oh, I never man. heard him speak live. I can't heard, believe that was your first time. That's awesome. Yes. Isn't that, isn't that crazy? <laughs> yeah. um, so heard both of them speak. Also, Justin Gibney, who was incredibly powerful. Um, Ikemini Uwan, who's a friend of the show, who's been on the show a few times. She was interviewed as well. Um, and I think Carrie Porter, I think that's her name. Corey, yeah. Uh, she Corey went to Porter, RTS Corey Porter. in Jackson. But yeah, it was, it was, um, man, it was a phenomenal event. It was encouraging. I also got to meet Alex Medina. Shout out to Alex, <laughs> which is really awesome. So it was a really good time of, of reflection, but also some, some powerful speeches and some challenges and some musical and artistic interspersings of justice and what it means to be, to not choose, you know, to not be a Democrat or Republican, but to kind of create our own voice, to create our own um, party standpoint. And so it was really very um, interesting. It's definitely something I want to start down here in, in Pensacola, Florida. So, so uh, yeah, I'm, I'm on that, I'm on that Christian fellowship pie as well. So, so since you have the inside track, uh, show Baraka needs to come on the show. We've invited him before, like years and years ago when we first started, but it hasn't happened yet, so I'm going to put oh, the really? ball in your oh, court. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. 
I'm gonna I, I don't know. Do I, I'm sure. See, because he's this hip hop head and very artistic dude. I just wasn't at the cool kids table. But now that I know Tyler, I sort of have my in. Well, I mean, there is a, there's a secret handshake and it's it's pretty long <laughs> and drawn out. So I won't go into it right now. But um, I'll, I'll text you those directions. Okay? <laughs> Set you up for success next time. Nice. <laughs> so we just want to, um, you know, just encourage you guys to continue giving us feedback on the show, whether it's um, via Twitter, whether it's on the the actual um, Red Network site website page where we post these episodes. We've gotten some really good feedback, both positive and some pushback, and we we really welcome respectful pushback. We welcome that. So if you have different ideas or maybe you think we're off the mark on something, please send that over to us and. One of the best ways that we've received feedback is via Twitter, and I've received a lot of encouraging DMs and um, face uh, Twitter mentions with people just letting me know that they've been encouraged by the show. And one such um, interaction that we had, we talked about last week with uh, David Reed, and um, his actual Twitter handle is David Reed eighty two, and he's been listening to the to the podcast pretty faithfully on Saturdays which is when most people listen to it when it when it comes out and they're able to to mow the lawn or to wash the dishes or to to work out while listening to the podcast and kind of interact it with it that way. And so he said that he had a lot of different questions. So he sends me this message and he says um, I'm going to listen to the broadcast again, and I'm going to start firing away questions. Before that, he said, um, second Saturday in a row listening to Pass the Mic, learned a lot from Dr. Jun, um, but left with lots of questions. Um, and Dr. Jun, I think, really promoted and provoked a lot of questions in a lot of different people's minds as yeah. they were listening to the podcast. Was well um, so I asked him, basically asked us to define systemic racism and white privilege. He says, there are terms I hear often, but never defined for me. Very important. And what we wanted to do is is if our listeners are asking questions, if we are hearing some feedback of some ways that we could be more helpful, we want to attend to that. We don't want to ignore that. We don't want to just continue with what's culturally popular or talking just about current events. If there's something that can help and assist you, please give us feedback. If there's an, an idea you want us to wrestle with, we're wide open for that. So I think it would be a service to David and a service to other people, and it's really helped us in our research to define and nail down what we mean when we say these two terms, systemic racism on one side and then white privilege on the other. So, Jamar, why don't you kick us off with systemic racism? And, and just to give you guys a, a little flow chart of how we're going to be addressing it, we're not just going to be randomly talking about it and giving you ideas and, and facts and statistics. We have a specific format that we're going to go by that you can kind of put into brackets and categories, and it'll probably also help your critique if you have some critiques for us as well. So it's in five main areas. We're going to talk about the academic definition of the term, where it came from, um, the personal definition, what what definition we would use, how we would maybe alter that um, and tweak the academic or popular understanding of it. Uh, Number three is popular examples. So how do we prove that this is is reality. How do we show some examples in popular culture? Uh, number four, common objections. So if people would push back, what are some of those pushbacks? What are the common objections that we hear to these things? And then finally, um, pros and cons to Christians using the term. And obviously throughout, we're going to be interspersing some biblical examples as well. So Jamar, with that um, long and drawn out introduction, why don't you hop into systemic racism? What's the a- academic definition of systemic racism 
obviously there's going to be tons of different definitions for all of these terms, but some of the things that I've found useful in, in my own experience are, are these. So if you want to say systemic racism or institutional racism, folks tend to use them interchangeably, but basically it boils down to racism that is structured into political or social institutions. Another definition from a 1999 Lawrence report by Sir William McPherson, it says, systemic racism can be seen or detected in processes, attitudes, and behavior, which amount to discrimination through unwitting prejudice, ignorance, thoughtlessness, and racist stereotyping, which disadvantage minority ethnic people. Um, these affect categories like criminal justice, housing, health care, politics, education, and you name it. Some some of the most important features of systemic racism that I think will be even more helpful for folks is the fact that, number one, it's impersonal. So systemic racism doesn't rely on any individual's actions. It doesn't rely on specific people doing certain things. All it really relies on is people going with the flow, people maintaining the status quo. Uh, another characteristic is that it's implicit. It takes a subtle form. So people don't have to say the N-word or they don't have to overtly exclude, exclude someone because of the color of their skin. Uh, Michelle Alexander, whose book, The New Jim Crow, is all about systemic racism as it pertains to mass incarceration. In that book, she says this. Uh, the widespread and mistaken belief that racial animus is necessary for the creation and maintenance of racialized systems of social control is the most important reason that we as a nation have remained in deep denial. I'll say it again. The widespread and mistaken mm. belief that racial animus is necessary for the creation and maintenance of racialized systems of control is the most important reason that we as a nation have remained in deep denial. In other words, um, a quote from another book that is extremely helpful, Divided by Faith by Michael Emerson and Christian Smith, we've mentioned on the show several times before. They say, uh, one line in there says, our ideas about race are stuck in the Jim Crow era. Meaning, we still think of racism and we picture folks like in white hoods in the KKK and cross burnings and people with Nazi flags or, or, or Confederate flags behind them. Um, and so we categorize, particularly people in the majority, really see racism in these personal, individual, overt terms, which is troublesome, right? If you only see racism in those terms, then it's easy, both on a personal level and a society-wide level, to say we're post-racial. Because if I don't use racial epithets, if I have friends of a different race or ethnicity, if I am trying you know, my best to be inclusive, then I can say, A, I'm not racist, and B, to the extent that society no longer accepts those kinds of behaviors, these racially overtly discriminatory behaviors, then our society is not racist, and hence the idea that we're post-racial. Now, how does this and, and not to cut you off, but how does this relate to also minorities, the way that minority people groups would view racism as well? Um, so is it is it always a one to one? Is it always well the majority sees it as KKK, the minority groups would see it as much more nuanced or is it a little bit more of a mix? Well, there's always exceptions for sure, um, but certainly 
minorities, particularly African Americans, um, would be more apt to understand the systemic and institutional forms of racism because they're still affected by those right. very personally. Whereas if you're in the majority, it's a little bit harder to see because it may not affect you in the same way. That being said, there right. are notable exceptions of folks who who basically and maybe we maybe get to this in the common objections but basically say that systemic or institutional racism is bunk it's not a real thing it's invented by the left to you know basically uh create policies that are meant to uh, keep people dependent and uh, take away our freedoms so that kind of thing certainly is out there both by whites and blacks so a, particular, a particularly important factor to understand is that mid to late 1960s on up through the 70s and 80s, there was a transition in language. So for most of U.S. history, it was perfectly okay to call people colored and Negro and, you know, Mohammedans and whatever you have. Um, it was perfectly acceptable to use very blunt overt language related to skin color, religion, ethnicity, whatever you, whatever you have. But particularly with the Civil Rights Movement, you have um, Civil Rights Act of 64, Voting Rights Act 65, Fair Housing Act of 68, these major federal legislative changes that outlaw and literally make illegal discrimination based on race. So the the phrase change laws don't change hearts is really misused in a lot of instances, but there's a degree of truth to it. So that these massive changes in the law uh, did affect real and positive changes in our society. However, since race, as Christians understand it, racism is a sin issue, Certainly, changed laws aren't going to take away the sin, either individually or socially. So what happened was there was, a, there was an evolution or a de-evolution, depending on how you look at it, in the language. And so they went from – folks went from saying black and brown or Asian or whatever, and they started using code words like low income, inner city, mm. renters as opposed to homeowners. Urban, yeah. Urban, criminal, super predator, whatever that is. Mm. Thug. Drug offender, thug, undesirables, all of these things. None of them uses, you know, any racial language. And so you have this quote unquote race neutral language, which is really just code for the same group. They just found different ways to categorize people, which included mainly black and brown folks. And so if we don't understand that we have made a transition from these overtly race based words and languages into a much more covert, supposedly race-neutral kind of language that really, in effect, is the same thing, we're going to miss systemic and institutional racism. Mm, That's good, man. Man, that's really good. That's a mouthful. Yeah. (laughs) You said, be quiet. I got it. No, no, no. (laughs) Not at all. I'm just, that's just a lot to process. And I think that's something that will definitely, you know, if we didn't have any of the other categories, if that's just where we stopped, I mean, that's a challenging thought for us yeah. to, to think through how it's warped language, how it's warped thought processes and all the above. So I think, you know, all of this is sort of the theoretical up in the clouds stuff. Some concrete examples might help. And here's where it gets yes. dicey, right? So, because people can view it differently. They can view these things as isolated incidents or part of a larger pattern or what have you. 
one of the best examples I can think about, and I'm going to give a plug for, for Rand and for a blog post I wrote. Uh, look up the article, Will Christians Constructively Converse About Systemic Racism? Will Christians Constructively Converse About Systemic Racism? I wrote a whole blog post on this, and there are others on the website. But in that one, I talk about this is this is right after the Department of Justice reports came out about Ferguson. And and what was so interesting is Department of Justice did two reports. One report was on the actual incident between Mike Brown and Darren Wilson. And it was basically the autopsy, independent autopsy. The other report was on the city of Ferguson, their police department and its practices. It's, it's, It's an incredible case of whichever report you pay more attention to tells a whole lot about your perspectives on race. That's right. So there were tons of people who paid almost exclusive attention to the first report, the autopsy, that showed Mike Brown most likely did not have his hands up and that there was actually probably some sort of physical altercation. Um, There's still some major questions about what exactly happened, but a big part of the narrative, hands up, don't shoot, was basically debunked by this report. And so you have tons of people saying, aha, see, I told you, you people who want to cry, you know, systemic racism and and the cops are racist and all this stuff, you were wrong. But the problem is they didn't look at that second report. That second report on the police department contained some very interesting facts. I'll give you just a few. Blacks were disproportionately more likely to be cited for minor infractions. In other words, African-Americans received 95% of tickets for manner of walking in the roadway or jaywalking and 94% of all failure to comply charges. Remember that according to the story, the initial altercation occurred because Mike Brown and his friend were walking in the street. Very important. Here's another one. African-Americans were 68% less likely to have their cases dismissed by a federal Ferguson municipal judge. Blacks accounted for 85% of the drivers stopped by police, 90% of people issued tickets, and 93% of the people arrested. Now, bear in mind that the, the, the major problem with all of this is that cops are disproportionately policing black neighborhoods and using those tickets for city revenue. And that's been proved in emails and it's been proved right. in this Department of Justice report. Just a couple more quick ones. In 88% of cases in which Ferguson police documented the use of force, it was against African Americans, 88%. And here's the one that gets me. There were 14 canine bite incidents in which mm. the suspect's race is known. In all 14 cases, the person was black. Wow. Wow. Considering the history and the backdrop of of where we came from as a country, that is particularly poignant. I'm just saying. So that's one major example. There are others in the drug war, um, which had several iterations. But according to reports in 2006, one in every 14 black men was behind bars compared to one in every 106 white men. And then if you want to look at between the ages of 20 and 35, one in nine black men was in prison. Mm. You want to go way, way back. You can look at vagrancy laws. Vagrancy laws were enacted right after the Civil War, 1865, 1866. Now you have all these freed slaves. Uh, There's a dramatic reduction in free labor, meaning slavery. And so whites sought to maintain control by saying that anyone could be stopped at any time, and if they didn't have papers showing employment, they could be arrested. 
Well, who does yep. that affect? <laughs> exactly. That affects freed slaves who did not have any capital, did not have any land, did not own any businesses, and had the choice between basically slavery, again, on the plantation, or striking out to find their own fortunes. Well, if you get caught while you're striking out, you could be put behind behind bars, and that leads to convict leasing, where prisons would basically lease out prisoners for no pay to the prisoner uh, for what amounted to slave labor. And there's a book called Slavery by Another Name that is absolutely right on the money. Um, Two more quick examples. Redlining. Uh, Federal Housing Administration adopted a system of maps that rated neighborhoods according to their perceived stability. Of course, A-rated neighborhoods or in-demand ones were the ones that lacked a single foreigner or Negro. And D neighborhoods were usually considered ineligible for any loans, and they had uh, black people. Didn't matter how many. Hmm. Um, And so what that meant was they did not get in, if you lived in this redlined area, you didn't get loans to purchase a home. Now, what happens over time? The last example I'll, I'll give is the wealth gap. So here's a startling statistic. A typical white household has 16 times more wealth than a typical black household. That is staggering. So, so again, now wealth is not income. Wealth is income plus assets. And so that would be house, boats, inheritance, whatever. Um, white households have 16 times more wealth than black household. That means the median white household is $111,000 in wealth in 2011 compared to $7,000 for the median black household and 8300 for the median Latino household. And that's the effects. That's the effect of systemic racism. If people can't get loans to go to college, like for the GI Bill, can't get loans to buy houses and come from a people whose grandparents were sharecroppers and and great-grandparents were slaves, over time you get a wealth disparity on the measure of 16 times uh, between whites and blacks. And so these are just a few examples of systemic and institutional racism. Goodness, man. Wow. Okay, so I I can already anticipate the objections. (laughs) The objections. You got to help me on those. (laughs) Okay, so what are... Okay, so I can think of one would be would be this this disbelief, right? So when you hear this, you hear bad, but you hear, look, the laws have changed. And and you mentioned the laws that have changed earlier in the 60s. So why would there still be a prevailing sense that there isn't equality or there isn't at least the opportunity for equality in a law changed black president? Um, black represented society. Yeah. It's sort of like the, the what more do you people want kind of <laughs> sentiment. We changed the laws. Well, I've heard that from people. It's like, we've given you people everything. What else do you want? We changed the laws. We have a black president. And so <laughs> when I was, when I was in high school, funny enough, I probably told you guys this, but when I was in high school, was at a basketball game and uh, one of my teammates who's, you know, was a close friend who was white. And uh, they were talking about one of the young ladies in our class who was obviously, you know, our school was incredibly conservative and she was obviously very, very liberal. And, um, and so he, he talked about the interactions that she had with the teacher about, 
ideas of government and ideas of laws and ideas of equality and such. And, uh, and I remember him saying, I'll, I'll never forget it. He said, man, we gave them bathrooms. Like, what else do they want? <laughs> we gave them bathrooms and of I'm all like, the examples. Where did you, where did you get that from? <laughs> you know, and, and why did you think that was okay to say? And I remember not even being, uh, you know, familiar with terminology and not even familiar with ideas of, you know, racial inequality or social justice because I just wasn't taught and still thinking, now, why did you say that? Yep. And looking at one of my friends, like that's probably, you know, past the line, you know? Yep. So it's very interesting. I, I didn't say that. I was half joking because I've heard that before. Well, the exceptions more often than not prove the rule. So you, you can always point to examples. There are black actors who have won Oscars. That's great. That's more the exception than the rule. There, it, there has been a black president for two terms. That's fantastic. That's the exception and not the rule. And so that's one thing. Just because you can point out an exception doesn't disprove the mountain of data that demonstrates that African Americans and many other minorities are disproportionately affected in a negative way with all these sort of quality of life factors, whether that's prison, health, education, you name it. Um, that 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 sort of gets to the same idea as as tokenism, right? One of the things, right. so so Brown versus Board of Education, which desegregated public schools, public facilities, was passed in 1954, and for over a decade, especially in Mississippi, there was no movement because in in the decision it said, you know, states can move, quote unquote, with all deliberate speed. Well, what what day on the calendar is that? <laughs> and so it what never occurred. When, yeah. when is when is soon? When yeah. is when is it's coming? Oh Lord. Yeah. Um so so what happened was so the law changed and then what happened in Mississippi, the guy named Joe Patterson, who was the attorney general during the civil rights movement and basically the lawyer for the state, he defends Mississippi's, quote unquote, freedom of choice rule, which says, OK, our schools are desegregated. Uh, people can go anywhere they want. Well, no white person at that time or no white family is going to send their kids to black schools because in another form of systemic racism, black schools were chronically underfunded as compared to white schools when it was legally segregated. So these schools were terrible. One room schoolhouses, no heaters, no boards, hand-me-down books, all that stuff. What family is going to send their kid from a better school to a school like that? And then it worked the, the other way too. Very few black families are going to send their kids to predominantly white schools because of all the intimidation and even violence they face. They could lose their jobs. They could be run out of town. Their children would be face, faced with incredible bullying at school. Parents would uh, face violence, all of these things. So very few black families are going to choose to have that fight that battle. But what you could say is, listen, we're adhering to the laws. It's just no black people want to come to white schools. And the white people want to go to black schools. So that's the kind of thing that happens with systemic racism. Yeah, you can have a law that's changed, but if there's no actually Im impact, it goes from uh, being enshrined in law to simply de facto racism. Right. What about the objection that, okay, systemic racism and this idea is more directly connected to liberal ideology? Like how do Christians – who would say that we are conservatives or we believe in 
traditionalism or we believe in constitutionalism or whatever people would say that they would believe in, how can we reconcile that with this term? Because what it implies is that there's something systemically wrong with the country, which leads back to its foundation. Mm. So, so you're, you're really coming at the foundation of what we consider to be Americana. Wow. So, so what would you say to the person who says, oh, well, you're, you're saying some, there's something wrong with America itself? I would say, much like Dr. King, that America has failed to live up to its stated ideals. Uh, so so if, if all people have inalienable rights given by their creator, then that should lead us to treat people a certain way. Clearly that didn't happen in the antebellum days. Clearly that hasn't happened since when you had Jim Crow and then more recently different forms of systemic and institutionalized racism. And so we have very high and noble ideas as a nation. However, those high and noble ideas have not been equally applied to all different people groups. Hence a hashtag like Black Lives Matter, because for so long in the United States, uh, the ways that uh, laws and institutions have treated people of color has has devalued them. Um, and so, you know, and, Ameri- and, and this also. Yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. Go ahead. No, continue. America continue. has a lot of potential. Right. But we have failed to live up to many of our ideals. And I would say there are many things, especially in politics recently, uh, for instance, the the um, laws about um drug sentencing and welfare policies that were passed in in the 1990s during the Clinton administration have had disastrous effects on African Americans and led to skyrocketing rates of incarceration among low-income people of all races, but particularly black folks. Right. And that's, and that's another important thing to, to zoom in on that. Yes, we are kind of zeroing in on the, the black, right, the black, white history of our country but that that's not the only place where we see systemic racism that's present. Right. That's right. Like there are there are numerous places, even as you, you mentioned in the wealth gap, yep. where different ethnicities see a distinction in 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 outcomes and in assets and in wealth and in tangible. Yeah. So it affects so. women, the poor, non-native English speakers, you name it. It can affect it affect lots of different people. But the other part you asked is very important too. Uh, because it, it really depends on how you view the world. And a lot of times, even our understanding of Christianity affects our understanding of racism. So evangelical Christians are overwhelmingly white, um, 80, 90% according to some statistics. And evangelical Christians overwhelmingly believe in this idea of free will individualism. In other words, they believe America is a meritocracy. People get what they get because they work hard or they don't. And it's a level playing field. And each individual person can determine his or her fate for him or herself. What that does is neglect the fact that systems impact someone's opportunities and options. Yes, so that if, if I'm growing up in a lower income area of Jackson, my options for school are very limited. If I'm growing up in a different suburb or I have more wealth, I have lots of different choices. And that's a part of a systemic issue uh, that can't simply be explained away by saying, well, you just need to work hard. I can work as hard as I want, but if my high school has no AP classes, 
that's an issue. Right. <laughs> and that's right. an issue that no amount of my studying is going to fix. So so there are things like that. But we need both, right? Because there are personal sin issues. There are issues of morality affecting individuals that will affect their ability to be successful and flourish in society. Christians are real good at pointing that out because we believe in original sin and uh, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So it's very individual on that side. However, we need the other side that says that because systems are made up of people, they can be sinful too. And it doesn't actually take anybody being overtly racist or discriminatory. They can just follow the normal systems and procedures which disadvantage certain people groups based on race or income. Yeah, that's that's interesting. That's exactly what the end campaign was about, right? This this concept of holding people accountable to systemic sins while at the same time holding ourselves accountable for personal sins as well. Um, So just kind of operating in that duality. But finally, what are some pros and cons? What are some what are some things that you you think Christians should think about while they use this term? Should they use this term? Should they not use this term? Is there a better term, et cetera? I think it's a helpful term. Um, I, I talk a lot about, uh, yeah, yeah I, I think it's a helpful term. I think if you are a white person or a person in the majority who, who wants to understand the perspective of many minorities, you've got to know the ins and outs of systemic racism. Um, that is a lot of what I think is causing activism today. That's a lot of what people are protesting against is not just the individual forms of discrimination, but the institutional forms. And so if you want to understand sort of the current state of affairs in in civil rights activism, that's a critical piece. Um, I think as well, the, the folks like salvation is not found in fixing a system. That's good. Um, That's good, Doc. It is found in Jesus Christ alone. And so as Christians, we have to be adamant on that, even as we attempt to learn from, you know, other political traditions, other, you know, social sciences and whatnot. We got to maintain the unique Christian emphasis on the vertical reconciliation uh, that happens between God and humankind through Jesus Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit. So 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 that's there as well. We can't let go of that. Um, the, the last thing I'll say is just that systemic and institutional racism is impersonal and amorphous, and it can be very hard, especially when laws aren't worded using color-coded language. Um, it can be very hard to, to point out the enemy. And so an analogy I make, it's, it's the difference between fighting World War II with the Axis and the Allies and clear good guys and bad guys, clear enemies, clear lines of battle versus fighting today uh, the war on terror in the Middle East. Uh, one, per, one, one day you might be allies with someone, the next day they might be your mortal enemy. It's hard to know who's right. a friend and who's an enemy, where those lines are drawn, and they're constantly changing. That's the difference between, I think, the historic civil rights movement of the 20th century and the civil rights movement that continues today. Yeah, and that's that's a great point. I think one maybe con of the term is it implies that racism can be anything but systemic, yeah. right? Like it, the implication that a lot of people fall into when they would say racism is 
you know, these these slurs and it's this overt discrimination. And I think when we call something systemic racism, I think that should kind of be understood, right? Like racism is a systemic idea and bigotry isn't always systemic because it's individual or bias or but I think they all have systemic elements. So I think whenever we use systemic racism, I'm I always want to ask what other form of racism is there um that I missed because I think all racism is intrinsically systemic. So and that kind of depends on how you define racism, though. So right. I know I'm opening up a, a bit of a can of worms. But I think if I'm pushing back against something, I'd say, well, I mean, you know, when we say systemic racism. We're furthering this idea that there's individual personal, quote unquote, racism. And, you know, I, I feel like racism is more systemic. It's more in, in a system. And that if it's personalized, it's bias or it's partiality in the biblical sense or it's big bigotry or, so it's or like, what have you. It's like it's implying it's an either or type of thing? Sort of. And I, I don't I don't really think or, – or implying that it can be something outside of what it is. You know, so yes, it is systemic and we need to stop trying to act as though it's not because that's where we're running into issues. We're running into issues because people people say – you know, you have your bathrooms, what more could you want? Because they think racism is individual, uh-huh. not because it's systemic. Like we have to, we have to drive that home. You cannot repent just for person, personal things. We must repent collectively as well. Um, so that's what, that's kind of where I would, I would say maybe a con is, but you can, you can push back. <laughs> You've just, you, you, you just brought up another hot topic, collective repentance. We'll hit that one in another show. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Jamar, that was really good. Great information there. So much to consider and chew on. And to be honest with you, I think we're just going to save the white privilege discussion for the next episode of Pastor Mike. I think it's very important for us to kind of sit with a lot of the information that you've given to us. Um, what are some of the books and resources that you gave to us to read or to, to reference? Because I think that would be very helpful practically for people to walk through that and walk through that journey of understanding what systemic racism is um, rather than just hearing about it and then leaving it. But, but to kind of walk through it in their everyday life. Sure. Uh, the number one book I always recommend for anybody wanting to understand anything about race and the church is Divided by Faith by Michael Emerson and Christian Smith. We got to get them on the show, by the way. Um, we do. The other one, which is a very controversial book, but extremely helpful for introducing you to the conversation, no matter what side of the argument you fall on, is The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. And in this book, she basically argues that mass incarceration is the new racial caste system and affects African-Americans in particular, but also Latinos and the poor in a similar way that Jim Crow laws affected black people before the legislation of the 1960s. So that's an extremely helpful book for for wading into the conversation about systemic and institutional racism, particularly as it um, pertains to prisons. New Jim Crow is 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 controversial now. I didn't know. Yeah, yeah. Some 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 it's people. still controversial. <laughs> um, maybe the title. I mean, it's kind of like a yeah. I, I can get the title, but okay. I mean, a lot of people don't even agree. You know, all those common objections to systemic racism. They level against that entire book. So it's very interesting debate. Um, another one I would recommend. I mean, if you read, okay. Uh, 
This is the, I referenced him before the Attorney General Joe T. Patterson. There's a book called Joe T. Patterson and Southern White Resistance, and that's by one of my professors I had at Jackson State University by Robert Luckett. And I think it's on the pricey side, maybe thirty plus bucks for the hardcover, but it is well worth it's a Christmas it. Christmas gift, there, bro. yeah, Christmas gift. Maybe you had a gift card from Christmas you need to spend, whatever. Um, but it is extremely helpful because what happened was, like I said, in the '60s when all this legislation was passed outlawing overtly racist language in the law, there were conscious decisions made by guys like Patterson to say, okay, we cannot fight the federal government on this. The Supreme Court has ruled we're not going to win. He's speaking as a lawyer. We're not going to win these battles. Otherwise, you get embarrassing episodes for the state, like when James Meredith tried to integrate Ole Miss and you have federal troops come in. It's this big national embarrassment for Mississippi. He says, instead of doing that, this massive resistance campaign, let's do strategic accommodation. So let's give a little to, to, to preserve a lot of white power. And let's change the language and not say black or white, but we'll say these other terms and preserve power. So that's a really helpful um, book for that. That's chilling, bro. Yeah, man. This stuff is real and it's ongoing. It is not just 50 years ago. It is today, right now. So a lot of those books. And also, if you go to the randnetwork.org website and bookshelf. look bookshelf, go to, the bookshelf, go to the bookshelf, I think it's under resources and it says the bookshelf. And we have a whole, I mean, dozens of books that we recommend uh, for learning more about race and culture, theology, things like that. So good. So good. Man, Jamar, this has been excellent. This has been encouraging for me, challenging. I have a lot of things to do uh, in, in terms of study and research and just chewing on a lot of the things that you said. So. Thank you for, for serving us and serving the church well with this. Man, great questions. And I'm no expert. Go back and listen to uh, some of our other guests on this topic. They've been really helpful. And certainly go out and do your own research. Feel free to push back. Feel free to ask more questions via Twitter or Facebook or the website. Please do. Yes. Excellent. We want to thank you for joining us for this episode of Pass the Mic. As always, you can learn more about the Reformed African-American Network by visiting randnetwork.org. You can follow the network on Twitter at Rand Network, as well as the show at underscore Pass the Mic. And don't forget to like us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Reformed African Americans. Pass the Mic is a collaborative effort between the Reformed African American Network and Pottery Studios. Visit Pottery.com to discover the highest in quality online audio entertainment. Our producer for this show, as always, is Bo York, and the co-host has been Jamar Tisby, and I've been your host, Tyler Burns, and we'll see you soon on the next Pass, Pass the, the Mic. mic. You've been listening to Pass the Mic, a Pottery production. To find out more about this and other shows, visit Pottery.com. That's P-O-D-A-S-T-E-R-Y dot com. This episode was brought to you in part by the Lord of Spirits podcast. Many Christians yearn to break free of the influence of secular materialism and to understand the union of the seen and unseen worlds as made by God. What is the spiritual world like? Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.